0: Let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Hebrews. We'll be reading Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, over to Hebrews 8, verse 7. So again, starting in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Remember in the book of Hebrews, this is the section describing Jesus as our great high priest. We'll see that also in our sermon from Samuel So let's look, starting in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he that is Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there had been no occasion to look for a second. Amen. Let's pray again for God's help as we come to his word together. Lord, we know what you've said, that we do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from your mouth. And Lord, we pray now that you would give us a hunger for that word, a hunger for the words of life, the word that will never fail and that will meet our every need. Give us a hunger for that, and Lord, meet that need. Feed us now with your word, by your spirit, wherever each one of us is. We need you, and you will do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, this evening we're going to continue in our sermon series in first Samuel, and our passage this evening is first Samuel chapter two verses twelve to thirty six. That's first Samuel chapter two verses twelve to 36. If you remember where we've been, we've seen Hannah and her prayer. In chapter one, she, she gets the gift of Samuel. She responds in the beginning of chapter two, this amazing prayer of thanksgiving. And now in chapter, in the middle part of, middle and end of chapter two, we start to see the life that Samuel is part of. So let's start reading in verse, chap, or verse 12 of chapter 2. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servants would come and say to the man who is sacrificing, "Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will only accept boiled meat from you. He will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw. And if the man said to him, "Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, "No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force." Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? By fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold... The days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that should be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be any old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men." And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a shore house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. One of the things that jumps out immediately from that passage is the simple point that God cares about his worship. God cares about his worship. That's actually one of our key convictions as a church, that God cares about his worship. And we get that conviction from all of Scripture. God cares what we do when we worship him, right? We're obeying his commands. But God also cares how we worship. God cares about our heart. That when we come to worship, we worship him with faith, with trust, with joy. We're not just going through the motions when we come to worship God. As we saw from this passage in Samuel's day, God cared about his worship. And some of his people also cared about his worship, but many others didn't including God's priests. And actually, God cares so much about his worship that he had to act. He had to come to bring glory to himself by restoring true worship and to bring good to his people again through worship as well. In our passage, we see that he comes to act in judgment and he comes to act in grace. What we see tonight together is that the Lord promises to provide a faithful priest for his people. The Lord promises to provide a faithful priest for his people. This is exactly what the people at the time of Samuel needed. They needed a godly priest who would lead them in worship. Now, the way that this chapter is written is really a series of contrasts. First, we'll see sin and then faithfulness. Then it'll go back to sin and back to faithfulness and back to sin and back to faithfulness. That'll happen three times. And we'll look at each one of those contrasts in turn. The, the first contrast between sin and faithfulness is found in verses 12 to 21. It's the sin of Eli's sons which is contrasted with the faithfulness of Samuel's family. So, sin of Eli's sons, faithfulness of Samuel's family. And the sin of Eli's sons, that's where we start. Their sin is terrible. Verse 12 and verse 17 kind of bracket the story about their sin, and they tell us what the problem is. Verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. But on the other side, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. These two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they do not know the Lord. That means they are not converted. They are not actually joined by faith to Christ, and their unbelief leads them to a contempt of God's worship. We see what that contempt looks like in verses 13 to 16. There's two specific sins here that are highlighted. First, you could maybe say is a, a potluck approach to sacrifices. See, what would happen is Hophni and Phinehas would send one of their servants with a big fork, and when someone was getting ready to sacrifice, when the meat was boiling, the servant would stick his fork in and pull out whatever meat and bring it to the priests. You and I might say, well, what's wrong with that? Maybe they got bored of something. They wanted a, a change of cut. Well, no, that's not what's going on. God actually guaranteed certain parts of the sacrifices to the priests. See that in Leviticus and also in Deuteronomy. And by God doing that, he is providing food for his priests. He's telling them that he will take care of them and that they can be content in him. But Hophni and Phinehas weren't satisfied with God's setup. And what they are doing is saying that God's way isn't good enough. Again, God taught the priest to rely on him, but Hophni and Phinehas take matters into their own hands. That's bad enough, but the second sin is even more serious because they are stealing from God. See, the priest's servant would come again, and this time he would demand raw meat for the priests. And it looks like what the servant was doing is demanding the best part for the priest, the part that had the fat. What's the problem with that? Well, again, look at the Old Testament and the laws about the sacrifices. The fat belongs to God. The best part of any animal is burned as a pleasing aroma to God. Even regular worshipers could see the problem with this sinful practice. They would confront the servant. But the servant had instructions to intimidate or even hurt those people to make sure that the priests got their way. This is really serious sin. And there are a few lessons here that we can learn from the sin of Hophni and Phinehas. The first one is just simply to say that they sinned even though they didn't do away with God's worship. No, in some ways it's worse because what they did is they twisted God's worship to their own ends. These aren't the only people who have ever done this. Look at church history. Look at the church today, and you will see men doing this very same thing. They make God's worship self-serving, or they promote unbiblical beliefs, or do lots of different things. God was angry with Hophni and Phinehas for their sin, and he is angry with false shepherds like the people I just mentioned. We also see another lesson from the sin of Hophni and Phinehas, that their sin is made worse by their position as priests. They're the spiritual liter- leaders of Israel. They have great influence on the people, and God requires greater faithfulness from his leaders than he does from just his ordinary people. And that really turned, like, kind of focuses on, on what they were supposed to be doing and how they're getting it wrong. What they are doing as priests is actually preventing people from worshiping God, right? They are standing in the way of fellowship with God. And they are purposefully destroying the picture of God's faithfulness and salvation that is shown in the sacrifices. They are standing between the people and their God. If you actually think carefully about what Hophni and Phinehas are doing, Um, they're actually breaking at least the first five commandments, right? Because they're serving themselves instead of God, they're abusing their spiritual position, and they're preventing the people from rightly worshiping God. No wonder God is so angry with them. They are treating his worship, and by extension, they are treating him with contempt. This was a dark time in God's church, but even in that darkness, God provides hope for His people as He draws our attention to the faithfulness of Samuel's family. Look at verses eighteen to twenty-one. First, we see Samuel faithfully serving the Lord in the exact same place where Hophni and Phineas commit so many terrible sins. God is bringing a faithful servant. We're also reminded as we look at this family of the faithfulness of Elkanah and Hannah. They come year by year to the temple, and we see again the results of Hannah's prayer for God to give her a son. We'll see soon that God will justly judge sin in the lives of Hophni and Phinehas, but, but here, looking at Samuel's family, God gives us hope by showing that faithfulness is rewarded. Look at Eli's blessing and God's provision in verses 20 to 21. Eli says, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And then the result, verse 21, Indeed the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. God rewards faithfulness. And God gives Hannah much more than she ever pledged to him. She gave up one son, and he gave her five more children. That's the kind of abundant generosity that God shows for all faithfulness. That's the same kind of generosity that God shows us now. Uh, Let me give you an example from the New Testament. If you remember Peter, Peter often puts his foot in his mouth at various times. Well, in Matthew 19, he does the same thing. Jesus gives this parable about giving up everything for him, and Peter says, well, that's what we've done, Lord. We have given everything. We have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus promises a blessing. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, he's talking about the apostles, you will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is the promise for us. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. God always generously rewards our faithfulness. Maybe not with something as concrete as five additional children, um, but he says it's a hundredfold. There is abundant blessing. And beyond blessing in this life, he promises us eternal life. Faithfulness is always worth it. That's encouraging to see God working in this family, to see that ray of hope in a very dark time. But after that really encouraging scene, we're just plunged right back into the evil of sin. And we're right back to the sin of Hophni and Phinehas And now their father, Eli. See, we look at verse 22 and following, and we see that Hophni and Phinehas have now added adultery to their list of sins. And they don't even try to hide it, right? Eli hears about their sins from many other people. Did you notice that detail? Now, Eli knows that what they're doing is wrong. He recognizes the seriousness of their sins because they are sinning against God. Look at verse 25. We know all sins, yes, are sins against God. Psalm 51. But Hophni and Phinehas have sinned more directly against God because all of their sins in this passage are related to God's worship, even their adultery. Because do you see who it involves? It involves women who were supposed to be serving the Lord. They are twisting every part of God's worship to serve themselves, they are sinning publicly deliberately and greatly against God. They're rejecting God, they're rejecting his worship, and they're also rejecting his salvation. And there is no longer a way for them to be reconciled with God. This is a reminder, actually, of the warning in Hebrews 6, that there are those today in a similar situation. right? Those people who have fallen away and cannot be restored since... Listen to what Hebrews says, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Does that sound like Hophni and Phinehas? Yes, it does. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't specify what exactly that sin is, right, in people today. But he does say there are people today who are clearly rejecting Jesus and salvation, and God rejects them as well. That's what we see in Hophni and Phinehas. They have rejected God, And God has rejected and condemned them. Verse 25, But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Those words should chill you, that the Lord willed to put these men to death for their sins. This is an example of what we call judicial hardening. When God hardens someone's heart, see it in the life of Pharaoh, Remember that? We see it also in Paul in Romans 1 as God hands over people to their sin. Hophni and Phinehas are responsible for the sin, don't, don't get me wrong. But God is also determined to give them the just judgment that is due for their sin. As we look at the sin of, of Hophni and Phineas, and we see these words, unfortunately we see that even Eli is involved. That might not be so obvious because isn't he actually correcting his sons in these verses? Is he doing the right thing by telling them to repent? You could say yes, but that's it. He doesn't do anything else. He lets their sin continue unchecked. I mean, if there was a time for church discipline, this would be it. And Eli would be the man to do it. He is supposed to be, as the priest, he is supposed to be preserving the worship of God. The glory of God, the purity of God's church, and God's worship, that's what he's supposed to be doing. But all he does is talk. What a sad situation of sin on all sides. But then there's another ray of hope. See, God continues to show his people and to teach us that he is working. Samuel remains faithful Look at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Just think about the context just for one second. Isn't this an amazing statement given the the circumstances at Shiloh? Right, the priests are corrupt and Eli is complacent and yet Samuel grows. Especially... In favor with the Lord, God is well-pleased with his young servant Samuel. What explains Samuel's growth in godliness in the middle of such sin? It's God's grace. That's the only answer. It's God's grace. God acts to preserve and strengthen Samuel. Remember, again, this is not just a story about one boy. This is not just about one individual believer. We already know from chapter one that Samuel is going to serve in a mighty way, to serve God and the entire people of Israel. So God's work in Samuel's life has far-reaching consequences for all of his people. So again, there's this note of hope. God is acting in the middle of sin. And then we're back to sin again. Or more accurately now at the end, judgment for sin because that's how the passage ends with judgment on eli and his sons god sends a prophet to confront and condemn eli and the prophet actually begins by reminding eli of god's grace he says didn't god graciously choose your ancestors to serve me wasn't it a privilege to serve as a priest eli You're supposed to say yes And then he drives the point home. You sinned against that grace. The fact of God's grace makes Eli's sin even worse. Why then, if you had that blessing, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And why do you honor your sins above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Eli also has treated God with contempt by participating in the sin of his sons. Eli is taking God's grace and he's throwing it right back in his face. And so God begins to pronounce judgment on Eli. There is nothing else left for him. And as he he gives Eli this message of judgment, he reminds him of what he could have had because he reminds him of one of the principles of God's kingdom. Look at verse 30. Says, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, like you, Eli, you shall be lightly esteemed. God will greatly honor servants like Samuel, who honor him, but he will reject and judge men like Eli. This is how God works. This is how God works time and time again in history. There's a more modern example, maybe. Do you remember Eric Little? chariots of fire do you remember that movie maybe you remember the story too um remember eric little chose to honor god by not running in the olympics on sunday and there's a scene in the movie that actually happened in real life that as he's getting ready to race in his other race at the olympics someone hands him a piece of paper with the first part of this verse written on it those who honor me i will honor For Eric Little and for us, it is so tempting to honor something else, to honor other people or other things rather than God. We feel that pressure on a daily basis. We all do. You know, what are we supposed to? We're supposed to honor the views of the world around us, right? Their view on wealth or sexuality or leisure. You fill in the blank. You can feel that pressure. Just be best if you agreed with what we're saying or at least just stay quiet. That's the temptation. Honor the world instead of honoring God. But there are many Christians throughout history who have chosen to honor God instead. And their stories didn't turn out quite as glamorous as Eric Littles did. You know, they they received death instead of a gold medal. And yet, God honored them. God always honors those who honor him It may come through a a deepening spiritual life, you know, a greater sense of his closeness. It may come through material blessing. Don't rule that out as a possibility. But it may also come through an outsized impact on God's people. You can think about men like Paul or Luther or Calvin or even just regular people, faithful pastors that you may know, faithful church members today who honor God and God honors them. And they have many, many spiritual children. God will bless faithfulness. God will honor those who honor him. But for the likes of Eli, they won't have any blessing at all. Instead, for Eli and his entire family, their future is judgment. Should you read these verses, do you think that God's judgment described here is too harsh? Now just think about What does God promise Eli here? Let's be honest here. Every one of Eli's descendants will die young. They will see God's blessing on others and never experience it themselves. They will live lives of grief and poverty. All his descendants will eventually die by the sword. And Eli will experience the death of his two sons on the same day. Does that sound too harsh? I think if we're honest with ourselves, it does. I know I read that and I thought, wow, this is amazing. Is this going too far? that raises the question, did Eli and his family really deserve this? Is what they did so bad that this is what was waiting for them? The answer is yes, they did deserve this. We don't understand God's holiness or our own sin well enough. Just think about what God says in the Ten Commandments. He says, I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. God takes sin seriously. But God especially hates sins that are committed to his face when people oppose him and destroy his worship. As we see through the rest of Samuel and also into Kings, God keeps his word of judgment. Hophni and Phinehas died on the same day, 1 Samuel 4. Almost all of Eli's descendants were killed by the sword on one day, 1 Samuel 22, and his last descendant was expelled from the priesthood in accordance, as it says, with this promise of judgment. You can look at 1 Kings chapter 2. God is serious about sin. That applies today. You know, God doesn't pronounce specific judgments like this on people today, but remember that He promises hell. That is what is waiting for every sinner outside of Christ. That is a constant reminder for us and for others that God takes sin seriously. It's hard to find hope when you're looking at a promise of judgment like the one that Eli receives. But it's there. There is hope because God is still at work. Let me point out a broad part of hope and then a narrow part of hope. Look at the broad uh, example of hope first. God isn't done working. God cares about his name and he cares about his people. That's why he's judging Eli and his descendants, so that he isn't dishonored anymore and so that his people aren't misled anymore. He is doing this for his glory and our good. And as you look at Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, see also God has not given up on his people, even though their leaders are sinful. No, he's going to continue to be graciously keeping his covenant and his promises in spite of the sins of the leaders. But we also see a very specific promise of hope as well. In verse 35, God promises, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. This is the promised priest who will be faithful. He will do what God wants because he will know what is in God's heart and in God's mind. That's how close his relationship with God will really be. And God promises to bless that faithfulness, to bless that priest with descendants and eternal service before God's anointed, before God's Messiah who is this person? Sounds pretty good. Who is this? Well, this this chapter is actually pushing us to look first at Samuel, right? We've seen his faithfulness all the way through the chapter. And Samuel is the first fulfillment of this prophecy. He's not from the priestly line. That's true. And in chapter three, he's recognized as a prophet. But he does start to fulfill the prophecy. He is a faithful servant, We can look further into the time of David and we can see God finally removing Eli's line and giving his people Zadok and his descendants. That's true as well, but even Zadok and his descendants fall short of the perfection of this priest. See, God is promising here to provide the perfect high priest. He's promising Jesus Christ. Jesus will do what is in God's heart and in God's mind because he is God himself. And he will faithfully obey God in his own heart, in his own mind, and in his own actions. And Jesus is the perfect high priest. That's one of the major points in the entire book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the great high priest we need, right? He took on our human nature to be able to perfectly represent us. Look at Hebrews 2, He's the perfect high priest without sin, Hebrews 7. He is the high priest who gave himself as the perfect sacrifice, Hebrews 7 again. And he continues to perfectly fulfill the duties of a priest by interceding for his people. Jesus is our great high priest. That's the gospel message at the heart of 1 Samuel 2. God will provide his own high priest to save and sanctify and help his people. We all need Jesus' perfect work as our high priest because we're all sinners, right? We need his sacrifice. And even after we're saved, we continue to need his work because we are weak and so easily tempted and sinning. You know, if Christ stopped praying for you for just one second, you'd be doomed, But he does pray for us. He never stops praying for us. He prays perfectly for us. And he is always ready to help us in our time of need. Why? Because he's powerful. And why? Because he's been in our place. He is the perfect high priest for us. As we close, give thanks for Jesus. Give thanks for Jesus Our great high priest, the church is not ultimately led by men. No pastor, no presbytery, no general assembly. No, this is Jesus' church. Jesus' church is led by him. He is the head of the church. He is her savior. He is her Lord. And he has saved his people and he will preserve and strengthen all of who are his together. That is a great encouragement at all times. It is easy to look at the church and be discouraged. Have you ever had that happen? Maybe you're discouraged as you look at the state of the church in America. You read the news, declining numbers, or you read the latest scandal. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Jesus is not done. Jesus will continue to raise up faithful men and faithful churches to serve him. He will preserve his people, and he will preserve his worship. He did it in the time of Samuel. We can see other times, like the, the time of Elijah. God did it again. He will do it now. It's true he'll also judge. He will judge his church as he sees fit. And both of those true truths can give us hope. We can be discouraged when we look at the wider church. We can be discouraged by our own church experience. Hopefully not here, but many of us have been in churches before where we've seen sin. We've seen some pretty terrible things happen. We've heard the gospel being twisted from the pulpit. Even with those churches and even those experiences you've had, I hope what you've learned is that God and his plan will not be stopped. Hophni and Phineas could not stop God doing his work. That means no man, no pastor, and no church will ever be able to stop Jesus from his work in his own church. God will do his perfect work. That's something we can rely on. That's something we can rejoice in as we move forward as a congregation. God preserves his people, and he preserves his worship. And you and I are examples of that, and we can eagerly participate in God's work now. Amen. Let's thank God for his faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that as we look at this story from the time of Samuel. You didn't stop working. It was a dark time. We see the sin so clearly in the lives of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. and Yet you had your plan to save your people in Jesus Christ. You had your plan that you would always have people who would call on you. And you raised up Samuel. And you raised up others. And you've raised us up now to do that same work, to worship you and to work for you. Lord, we pray that this passage will be a great encouragement for us in our time as we seek to serve you together as a congregation. Lord, we pray that you would bless PRPC mightily, that you would preserve us, make us faithful, and Lord, that you would bless us in what we do for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.